0: you're listening to conservation connection
1: presented by last chance endeavors
0: i'm chance
1: i'm sarah catherine
0: and we are a husband and wife team that runs an environmental education nonprofit focused on connecting students to the environment
1: here on conservation connection we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe
0: We talk to professionals in the world of conservation science and the environmental movement, and we ask them about their career,
1: their current projects,
0: their wild and crazy stories from the field,
1: and everything in between.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Wild and Scenic Film Festival in Nevada City, California.
1: Wild and Scenic presents environmental and adventure films to illustrate the Earth's beauty,
0: the challenges that our planet faces,
1: and the work communities worldwide do to protect our home.
0: Join us as we discover just how these dedicated people are working to protect our planet.
1: Let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys, you probably thought the episode was starting, and it will in 30 seconds. But first, we wanted to let you know that we're taking a four-week break starting on July 16th, 2023. We'll be back with our 100th episode and another awesome season on August 13th. This is your chance to catch up on some older content and send us your ideas for what you'd like to hear in the next season. Now let's get to the show.
0: Alrighty, guys welcome to another episode of conservation connection this is going to be a really cool one we are here at the wild and scenic film festival in nevada city california and we are sitting down with a heavy hitter today this is mike Lebecki. he is a national geographic explorer and he's here at the film festival because he is the director and producer of a film that's called antarctica at the intersection of technology and climate action
1: welcome to the show mike
2: It is really nice to be here, not only sitting with you guys, but at this festival, The Wild and Scenic, it's an honor to be here. I mean, this community, the people, the films, the emotion, the magic and power and beauty that we get to connect with our Mother Earth and everyone who cares about it. This is a special time. So thanks for having me to talk today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is our first year here and we completely agree. We already feel it in just the couple of days that we've been here and very grateful to have met the people that we've met so far and get to um, create these great interviews and podcasts for our listeners. Um, So I would like to start with what exactly is a Nat Geo Explorer? I think all of us have kind of heard like of Nat Geo and like there are Nat Geo Explorers, but what does it mean to be one?
2: Well, let's see. I'll try to make it short and sweet. (laughs) A National Geographic Explorer, they have a lot of different ones. I mean, biologists, doctors, ornithologists, different people that are experts or have specialties in certain fields. And so, mine is expeditions from climbing expeditions to science expeditions to film making expeditions. Really, my specialty is I can go anywhere in the world and not only survive, but thrive in that environment. So, if I'm taking out a film crew to Siberia in the winter and it's minus 67 degrees, I can go out there and make sure everyone's healthy and happy and can operate in that environment. Or if it's a jungle that we're climbing and it's a hundred degrees and ninety-eight percent humidity, I can make sure that everything's gonna be dry and work. I
0: mean, it's just that's been my whole life is expeditions. And that's a really I mean, it's a very rare skill set. To be able to say, I'm really good at not dying, really is, is what that boils down to. It's like, you're very good at surviving in extreme conditions, whether it's climbing ice or whether it's surviving in humid jungle environments. And uh, I guess my real question is, how did you know that this was gonna be your career path, right, what, what did you do to go from somebody who liked being outside to being somebody who can do this as a profession?
2: Well, I want you to remind me to talk about that, but you said something about not dying. And that is one of my specialties and I go back to, I have a math background so I'm an old math physics nerd and when I look at these expeditions, I look at them as an equation. And I'm convinced that these expeditions are 100% mathematically safe, you will not die. Now, that being said, you can't make a mistake so you have to make the right choices out there. So. People will debate with me all day if that's true or not, but I absolutely believe that. But how I got into this, I grew up near Yosemite National Park in California. I don't know if you guys have been there. But um, Yosemite is pretty much the center of the universe for climbing. I mean, it's El Capitan and it's where everyone goes to test their skills or free climb El Cap, all these different things for Yosemite, even the history there. That's where all of the techniques were born, all the equipment we have. So... Growing up near there, I started climbing. It was a very random friend of a friend's brother. Something took me out climbing and my life changed. I dropped out of college. was pursuing a math degree. All I wanted to do was go climbing, went to Yosemite, ended up living there for years, climbing hundreds of days a year, and then started taking that climbing around the world to unknown, untouched, unexplored, truly unexplored places to climb big walls. And then that connected with All of the outdoor companies I work with, with National Geographic and then, oh, you're climbing. What about this science trip? What about this film trip? And I started shooting photos and videos and virtual reality and all the stuff that's led to this day because it's really important to bring these stories home. So, getting connected like that and realizing we need to bring these stories home and share with people to care about our planet. So, there's a kind of a short version of how it all and then it came to why Rash and Passion. The time is now. And living in that moment. Um, I do want to throw in that a lot of the way that I think and the passion that I have comes from my grandmother. And, you know, we kind of grew up and this and that, and she'd be like, the time is now and you have to live your dreams. And she's actually the one that convinced me to drop out of college and go climbing, go live your life. And
0: I mean, grandma Bertha, she was, she was the big inspiration. That's fantastic. And I think one of, I mean, there's a million things that I would love to talk to you about for the next yeah, hour or yeah. two about what you just said. But th- what really jumped out to me and what I've kind of learned over the past four years doing this podcast and talking to a wide variety of people is that many, many filmmakers, many of the people in this space of bringing stories in front of the public to get them interested and to change their behaviors about the environment did not start off as filmmakers, but started off as people that were experiencing this environment because it's their passion or because they were fortunate enough to have it in their backyard. And then they realized, I want to protect this. And the only way I can protect this is if I can get other people to care about it. And so you learn the skills of photography or filmmaking and use those skills to pursue what is the underlying passion as opposed to film as a passion in and of itself, which is a, you know, a completely other path and is an awesome path. But uh, having the sense of like, I love this. I want to care about it. I want to protect it. What skills do I need to go out and learn to do so? Uh, is a a really, really cool thing, something that I like to highlight and lift up here.
2: Yeah. And, you know, speaking of filmmaking, it it is a voice for our people and planet to bring these stories back, to get them emotional. I think a successful film, there's a lot of things you can say, what is a successful film? It's one that creates emotion, that you feel it, whether you're crying or you're angry or you're happy. If that film is making you emotional, I think it's succeeded. I don't care if it's a little camera that's all grainy the best cameras and crews in the world if you're watching and feeling emotion from that film i think that's success and for me as a filmmaker i was on a trip and this changed my whole life as a filmmaker i the first time i went and made a film was in 2002 and i went on a solo trip to greenland for six weeks by myself and i credit carded two of the best cameras you can get took them out learned how to use them and i'm filming this trip and i watched hunters kill a polar bear in a natural setting and it, it, it was devastating to see a polar bear this example of the miracle of our life and the power and beauty of our planet and i captured this on film and that i showed that to people and it just started it started a big thing here and so ever since then, i'm like i have to document every trip that i do and share these stories because that mystery on these trips you don't know what's going to happen and to capture that and be able to share it is very powerful
1: Yeah. So with that, we'll get into your film, Antarctica, why you're here this week um, or weekend, I suppose, at Wild and Scenic. You were a director, producer, as well as a subject of the film itself, right? Yes. So how did you get to the point of wanting to make this film? Was it just that you were like, oh, I want to go and do this. And so I'm obviously going to document it.
2: There's a little history there. So I've been to Antarctica, I think, 14 times. And so I have a lot of experience there. When you do an expedition to Antarctica, you have to have special permits from the Environmental Protection Agency, from the National Science Foundation, from the State Department, all kinds of different permits to go do science or go climbing. And so not only was I able to organize and just get the entire trip ready for the entire team, I also have a history with Abby Barrows, who's the scientist on there, and we've been working together for years. Uh, studying microplastics. And so basically my role is bringing her samples so she can analyze them on all of my expeditions that I go on. And I said, hey, you know, Antarctica, I mean, this is supposedly the last pristine continent. This is the place we need to do research. So we started working on it, gathering funds, connecting with companies to make it happen. And that's kind of the how it came together to do that. My experience and also the care for the planet as a Nat Geo Explorer, I can use my skills to get Abby down there to do this research and science. So, it's all, I think, you know, everything comes down to teamwork. It's teamwork, hard work, dream work. Absolutely. And, you know, what's, and I want to talk about this film a little bit because the film that we're showing is basically a 10 minute trailer to a much bigger project. So, we just got the results back even just like in the last couple weeks from this trip that we did. I mean, I mean, and, I don't want to get into the results because we're going to be sharing some information that's going to ruffle some waters, but there's a lot of microplastics in Antarctica.
1: Yeah. So let me uh, mark that question off of my list. I won't ask you to share the results (laughs) of (laughs) those. But I think
2: it's fun to talk about because really what's happening is, and I think you know this, everyone at Wild and Scenic Film Festival knows this, we need to figure out the answers to these problems. We need to find out the answers, then we have to apply them. Then we have to get the solutions and and make them reality. And you know, with estimated 12 million tons of plastics going into our ocean every year, what's that going to look
0: like in 50 years, a hundred years, 500 years? I mean, it's happening. It's a huge problem. And with the longevity of it, right? Like that's, those are not plastics that break down and are gone every year. It's a a, a compounding problem where it adds and adds and adds each year. Yeah. So,
2: um, I'll speak uh, from I'll, I'll talk about some of the stuff I've learned from Abby and, you know, over the years, plastics do not break down if they're incinerated, burned and turned into CO2. It's one thing. But as plastics do break down, they just turn into
0: microplastics. They never go away. They're in our fish. They're in our animals. They're in our water. I mean, it's... And when we say microplastics, we're talking about these are just tiny microscopic fragments of the plastic material, right? So, it's not like at a chemical level, the bonds are breaking down. You just have smaller physical pieces of the same material.
2: Exactly. So, if you looked at little pieces you find on a beach or somewhere that are, you know, just the size of a pinhead, like you can see those with your eyes. But they're so small, you can't see them without... So, they're micro. They're microscopic samples of plastic and but if you magnify them they look like the pieces that you can hold in your hand you know they're it's real plastic and it's everywhere
1: so how long did this film take you to create how long was the expedition itself and then from start to finish um, of actually getting it produced how long was that
2: ultimately about um just about three years so because of COVID right so we started the project you know we were on our way and then COVID hit and it was all off so you could even go more years so the time to get the permits the planning the funding all that stuff adds up pretty quick but the film itself that we have here um it took a couple months of editing you know i had a great film crew um one of my best friends keith ledzinski he's one of the top nat geo filmmakers and tommy joyce his partner Um, so i'm able to bring one of my best friends one of the best guys to capture this so talked about teamwork. We've got Abby, myself to organize. We've got Keith Ludzinski and Tommy. I, I mean, to bring this crew together is pretty top notch. And we wanted to do this the highest level that we can. And, and we were able to do that. But again, this film is a trailer that's going to turn into a much bigger story. I mean, even in the film, it leaves you hanging on, well, what happened? What are the results? Right. And we just found out. So we're now continuing the journey to tell that story. And like I said, it's, We're going to have to be careful about how we share this because we know where these plastics are coming from and we know how they're getting there in wind currents, ocean currents, but we're also doing something else that someone hasn't done and we're using artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I'm just going to say this, that, you know, we're working with Dell technologies and I have a bunch of friends there that are just like you and I, and they work for this big company and they're like, we want to do something different. We want to support and figure out and understand so us as a company, we can help. And so, it's this technology
0: is letting us know the who, what, why, when, where of these microplastics. Which I didn't think was possible, right? Once it breaks down to that point, you're like, oh, well, you know, it's it's non-point source pollution. I can't figure out precisely where it came from. But it sounds like this tech might have a way to pull back that curtain. Exactly. I mean, I'm talking exactly where. Exactly the who, what,
2: why, when, where. I mean, we know... And I'll keep it chill on the companies I call out. We know who's making the billions of single-use plastic bottles. You know, we know all the companies doing this. We know who's doing this. We have to at some point stop at the source. Right. You know, and figure this stuff out. But we have answers. And those those are going to lead to solutions. And it's also going to lead, I hope, to shaking some stuff up here where my daughter, her generation, the next generations, they're growing up making the laws, they're making the choices and they can stop the sources and they can say, no, these billions of dollars for corporate madness, it's not about our natural world. This is not how we're supposed to live. Yeah, great, have a healthy life, but to compromise and sacrifice to our planet and destroy the earth over it it makes no sense. And I know we all know this.
0: Yeah, right, absolutely. Can you give me like a snapshot of what sort of the, the tone was entering this project? Like, was there ever a sense that this was gonna be a pristine site that you are gonna visit? Or was it a sense of like, we know that there's probably mycoplastics here, we just don't know how bad the problem is? My sense, I was very hopeful that the results would would not be as bad
2: as they are. And, and that's only from starting to take samples all over the world for Abby. I mean, a, a good example is I think I mentioned, I spend a lot of time in Greenland and, and up on the Arctic in general. And I took some samples from, I'm talking like pristine glacier runoff. You know, a place that no one has ever been to. No human. This is unexplored. And bringing these samples back, and of course, of course, they're perfect. And no, they have microplastic fibers in them. I mean, just wherever the most pristine place you've been, you would imagine, they're, it's clean and it's not. And so, I've really, and that's kind of the passion for me and now obsession with helping Abby is this is real. this is, this is not ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Yeah. There's no denying this. I mean, we can debate about climate change and why, but the microplastics and plastic problem, this is mathematical fact, truth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's clearly there. You can see that it's there.
2: Yeah. And even Abby's research on her level, there's a lot of people doing it now, you know, one in three fish have microplastics in them. You might have heard the reports of human lungs, human blood. I mean, it's, when are people gonna wake up? And I think what it, gosh, unfortunately, is it gonna take that mass people are dying from cancer or another disease that plastics are causing it? Just like the pandemic we just experienced. Is it gonna take a pandemic for everyone to realize that now,
0: no, it's banned. We have to make a change. What's it gonna take? And I, I guess that kind of leads me to my next question of what are some of the documented or it's hard because we we haven't had enough time to study the effects of microplastics in the human body or in organisms' bodies to understand the effects that those plastics have on the outcome of that individual. But as somebody who's kind of lived in this world for the last couple of years studying this and, and working with a scientist who's looking at its prevalence, what are some of the concerns in terms of what are the health effects of having ubiquitous microplastics so i
2: wish i had an answer for that because i don't know if there's evidence that even the human lungs and the in the blood and the reports of they're finding microplastics i don't know if they're finding that okay this is causing a health defect or something unhealthy i don't know the information on that there might be information out there like that but i don't know it and i don't know if there's
0: anything proven for any any results like that and like i was saying even if we don't have anything proven there's still we just don't under we don't know we don't understand it and when you're talking about your risk calculations it's like what is the likelihood that something is bad and how bad is it if it's bad right well how can how good can it be if you're
2: ingesting petroleum products probably not everything yeah it can't be good and that's the issue is that it is happening in a major large mass scale Uh, what was it three years ago was 8 million tons of plastic going in the ocean. Now it's 12 million tons, three years later. Um, it's estimated that in 10 years, plastic production will double in 30 years. It'll quadruple. I mean, there's an incredible amount of hope, but there's also an incredible amount of gloom and doom and mathematically that we may not be able to change this.
0: So what keeps you hopeful? in the face of somebody who has been to some of the most pristine, untouched places and found microplastics? How do you maintain a personal fire that that there is hope in this fight?
2: Well, I remember there's a lot of things I could talk about with my grandmother. But another thing that she would say is, where there's life, there is hope. And I sort of get emotional even saying that because what is there without hope? you know, I mean, what is there without optimism and perseverance and resilience? And that all comes into the scope of hope. And I have a daughter who is part of the next generation. And what if she wants to have a kid? I mean, right now, uh, this is kind of interesting, but my daughter who's 19 and all of her friends, they're very um, passionate activists and uh, very pro-earth. And they're, they're really trying to, and they're but what I'm getting at is they don't want to have kids. If you ask them, they're like, we don't want kids. Look at our world. I mean, that is their answer. And, and it's really great for me to have my daughter who, by the way, has grown up traveling the world and has a very unique sense of this planet and um, talking with them and how they feel about what's going on. It's, it's completely different than I think. It's completely a different view of we don't want kids because of our
0: planet. Like, I mean, they're just like, we want nothing to do with having yeah. a child. And, uh, you know, to be honest, that's not the first time I've heard that sentiment. You know, your daughter's not, this story is not the first time I've heard someone say or or think about the fact that like, what what kind of a world am I bringing this child into? What kind of a future am I securing for them? And that's a really, that's a- It's
1: kind of bleak. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, a very
0: heavy conversation to have, but it's- And
1: like, I'm 28 and married and I feel very much the same as they do.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, and think about, so we're here at the festival and I go to a lot of film festivals. We all see all these different films and messages and there's a lot of consistency throughout environmental film festivals from how we're eating to microplastics to pollution, all this stuff. And last night I was in a session. This is the first time I saw a dedicated film to this about not having children not procreating and it was really powerful i mean they even gave a disclaimer this film is emotional visually and what you're going to hear and it was like whoa you know i could see some people just being like that is a lot to take in right there and i was and so we're at the wild and scenic film festival that is bringing these powerful messages that we all need to see and so i mean that was yeah There's you know, I mean, there's a lot of joy in this world. We don't want to forget that nobody's perfect, but if we're trying and we're living with intention of integrity and to do good, I believe that keeps the momentum of that hope we were talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to hit on something that you just mentioned is, you know, we're at this film festival and we all need to be seeing these films. And I feel like you may have a good answer for this, but I've heard it mentioned by a few people at film festivals like this is you're kind of preaching to the choir, right? So the people who are coming to these film festivals are probably conservation or environmental wildlife, like inclined. So they probably already care. Majority maybe probably understand. Every once in a while you hit a few new faces. But what do you think is the way to... I guess, reach more people who may not hear about it. One of the things I was saying to someone earlier is like, I like these shorter films that we're seeing because if I had no interest in this and was like, ah, yeah, like I'll watch like something about it to learn something and it's like 13, 16 minutes, like that's much more digestible than a two-hour film, you know? So I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that.
2: No, and, you know, I want to speak to that for this festival, the film, as a filmmaker in general. And also um, I'm on the film jury this year. So I'm one of the people, you know, choosing the awards and all this different stuff. And it's a really interesting balance when, when you have a festival setting and you've got an hour or hour and a half or two hour film, which, you know, it's a long film. When you have the attention of an audience, I'm all for it because you're there You're going to see this message. We've
0: all chosen to come sit in this room and watch it.
2: You're in a theater. You're in the film session. You're going to watch all the films that are in front of you. And it's an opportunity to share that message. Because you said, how how can we get these messages out? So film festivals are one of the most important things at the festival, in the theater. Think of our everyday lives. Think of all the analytics for social media where it's got to be 30 seconds or they're not going to watch it or, you know, it's got to be this or, you know, it's like, so... With those long films, I'm I'm a huge advocate where, where's the shortcut? You know, where's the trailer version? You know, we've got to have it to get that message out. Because you asked, how can we get the message? Film festival is great, but let's get the full, powerful, full film out there, whether it's 10 minutes or two hours. But I'm hoping that filmmakers start to say, hey, we need the short version. We need an elevator pitch. Yeah, because if you're watching it online or virtual and, you know, we're just, you don't have the attention For for any of us, for myself, like, I'm not going to sit down and watch a two-hour film unless it is that powerful and engaging. But it's hard to do in our everyday lives to do that, you know? And so, I mean, another thing I really want to talk about here, how do we get this message out? Film festivals, yes. But there's such a bigger scope of people, if you don't have kids, maybe your nephews or friends' kids, are you going to their schools, and the t- topic we're talking, microplastics, pollution, earth issues, petroleum, madness. Why isn't that curriculum in our schools? In every school, as much as math, history, English. That, that should be curriculum. One of the most important things. What do we have if we don't have a healthy planet? We're, we're not healthy. We have nothing. And then it goes on to, you know, um, think about social media. So I'm, I'm sure we're all connected on social media some way, shape or form. Most of us are. But think about the mass numbers of viral things like Taylor Swift. Here's an example. How many hundreds of millions of people, what if she's up there talking about single-use plastics? What if she's on TikTok or whoever, you know, these mass people connecting with people that maybe don't have the education to understand there's a problem here or the conveniences or laziness of our convenience of anywhere earth that is just convenient. And I call convenient, lazy. We need to do our part. So there's a lot of, you know, there's so many different ways we need to get this out there.
1: Yeah. And I think that's completely accurate. Like you were saying with like Taylor Swift or a large influencer like that, you know, they have a platform to share things like this, but even on a smaller scale, you know, like in school, if you have one friend, like we taught a course at a high school one time and, one of the things we talked about was like pollution and we took the kids out on a hike and the teacher told us a story later on of one of his students was driving with his friend and his friend threw a water bottle out the car window and he said, he, he stopped the car and he said, hey man, go pick that up. And he's like, I'm not going to go pick it up. You're going to leave me. You're going to like drive away. And he was like, no, he took the keys out and handed them to his friend and he's like, I'm not going to leave you. Go pick up your trash. Like you shouldn't do that. So I think. Those influencers who have such a big reach is great, like you said, because they can reach so many people at once. But, you know, even people listening to the podcast here can like do their part and have their impact just by like sharing with their friends and like over time that is going to make that impact. And I mean, we've seen it, you know, from even when I was a little kid, people used to throw trash out the car windows more. I used to see it so much and you still see it, but I like to think you see it less.
2: Well, I would say I see it more out around the world. So there's a lot of communities, countries, places that people don't have the understanding how important it is to at least get it in the landfill. Yeah. I mean, everywhere is just. I'm. I mean, I'm not going to say any locate, but people don't. I think there's a, there's an ignorance and a lack of education, and I'm not hammering on anyone. But once we understand and are educated, the importance of that. It's not too hard to do this stuff. I mean, we had a discussion earlier today in a workshop and, you know, we were talking about how can we, you know, not only how can we do it, but how is the individual important? You know, we need to go to the corporations. We need to stop the mass. But if we're living with integrity and we make a different choice a day or a different choice a week, imagine if a hundred million people made one different choice a week. That's right. You know, you times that by... Two choices a week, that's hundreds of millions of single-use plastic bottles that maybe aren't bought. Don't buy them. You know, don't buy that product if it's wrapped in plastic. How do we find the discipline of not being lazy Yeah. and that convenience? And it's I'm part of it. I go to Costco. I buy stuff. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to operate in this world without, it, but then we start getting these companies to think. I mean, what if uh, one of the kids I was talking to today is, Head of Kirkland, Signature, Costco, you know, it's someday day right. like, hey, wait right. a minute, let's do this. Actually, we'll sell more if we're environmentally friendly, truly. I mean, there's so many things to talk about with it, right. you know, it's just, but, there, you know, and that's where the hope comes back. Yeah. You know, it's that an individual can make a difference. You just never know where that's going to go, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what do the next few years look like for you? Do you have any, I mean, I guess we kind of already answered that question with, with uh, Antarctica sort of being the 10-minute trailer of a much larger project. So are you, are you gonna go further, more Antarctic expeditions looking for microplastics and, and trying to inspire action based on these findings or kind of what does that look like for you?
2: I think the Antarctica project, it's hard to say if we'll even need to because of the evidence that we have right now. I mean, we have a lot of work to do with that. So, but it does continue. Um, this will always continue as long as I'm alive. as how, you know, and this is for the audience, if we ask ourselves, how are we making the world a better place? How are we doing our part to give back? And Antarctica, you know, I have the fortunate situation that I can go to Antarctica and study science, but people can just do do it in their everyday lives. but, um, oh, so you talk about the future. So, I'm kind of getting back to, like, We need to stop this plastic madness. So future is, um, we also have a 501c3 nonprofit that my daughter started when she was 12, seven years ago. So we just got back from Bolivia and we built some schools. We brought solar power and computer education. So we're working on a project in Kenya and Guatemala. So we built schools and this is ultimately education without education for all the topics. And so um, there's a lot of that coming up but um i've got trips a bunch of trips planned for climbing for science for give back and i have to say i'm i'm obsessed but if i'm being super honest i'm, I'm just addicted to this life and i, I want to experience it as much as i can
1: yeah absolutely Love it.
2: totally get that
1: and as we wrap up here what would you say to someone who kind of Wanted to follow in your footsteps or maybe even look into your daughter's organization, the nonprofit that you were talking about, and um, kind of help the world in the way that they can.
2: The easiest answer is if you want to give back to our planet and you want to do better, go search it online. How can I make the world a better place? What can I do to change the world? And you'll get a gazillion answers. But I think more importantly is can you ask yourself, what am I passionate about? what do I care about? Is it animals? Is it, um, you know, the humane society with animals and adopting animals or helping them find homes? Is it pollution, you know, going on hiking trails and picking stuff up or advocating showing up at rallies? I I could go on and on. It's, we can all do something. I mean, here's another easy one. Um, I would imagine most people listening right now inside of their kitchen, they have a garbage can. Or they have a drawer that has the garbage bins. And they're probably lined with plastic liners from the ones that we just, oh, that's what you do. This is generational conditioning. We just line our plastic bins. Don't use them. There's two boxes of kitchen liners that you don't buy a year that don't go into the landfill. Just clean them out. Just clean your stuff out before. I mean, there's little things that we can do. You know, these bamboo utensils that, oh, we'll travel with our bamboo utensils. You don't have to buy those. There's another thing that you don't need. Yeah, it's not plastic. But if you've used bamboo uh, utensils, they suck. The forks don't work (laughs) in the salad. Just get your silverware from your drawer and travel with them and then bring them back, put them in your drawer. So consumerism, you know, how do we not buy stuff we don't need? Do we really need that? You know, and just I could go on and on. But I think whether you feel it's making a difference or not, I really think that if we're living with integrity, we will be happier about how we're living.
0: And I think that that's the beginning. I love it. I love it. This has been a really very intriguing set of conversations that we've had over the last half hour. Uh, I really, really appreciate your perspectives on this. And I really look forward to seeing what you're doing in the future. All right. Well,
2: thanks for having me. And um, I'll just say, why rash and passion?
0: That's probably gonna be the title of this episode.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners, um, we will go ahead and link where you can find out more about Antarctica and the other films that Mike has been doing. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection.
1: If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post.
0: We'd love to hear from you. So if you wanna reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email.
1: We love questions from our listeners. So if you heard something you'd like to learn more about, be sure to let us know.
0: If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts will help other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it.
1: A big thanks to the people working to protect our planet and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next time.